0: credit approval. Terms apply. So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it and if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get iXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off iXL membership when they sign up today at iXL.com slash Ologies. So visit iXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price oh, hey, it's your fig tree, just waiting in the yard to see how many leaves it has to sprout and unfurl before you stop and say, oh, look, the fig tree has leaves. Allie Ward, back with a bonus episode of Ologies. Did I think I was making this episode two days ago? No, no. But sometimes you see a tweet and you say, boy, howdy, let's get this human on the horn. Pass the mic and spread the word. So the March 10th virology episode was recorded on March 5th. A lot has happened in the last few weeks. I don't know if you've noticed. So I added an update before the intro to that episode, but I'm going to read it here too. Virologist Dr. Shannon Bennett wrote me on March 17th and let me know, quote, Daily new confirmed cases are growing in number exponentially here in the U.S., and that is in light of one of the lowest per capita testing rates worldwide by country, 26 tests per million people as of March 10th. That means that even though we all recognize that confirmed cases are just the tip of the iceberg of the actual infections in the U.S., our iceberg is particularly submerged. In short, she said, it's time to take social distancing seriously and flatten the curve. So that was an update from Dr. Shannon Bennett of the virology episode. So in light of the lack of testing, especially comparatively, plenty of us here in great old America are asking, where are the tests? How can we get the tests? So one guy, a neurobiologist and postdoctoral fellow at Harvard's Department of Stem Cell and Regenerative Biology and the Broad Institute, said, well, shoot, we have so many ologists out there. Let's just see who wants to help. I'm paraphrasing. And he put together a Google form just as a private citizen working completely independently, not as an employee of Harvard or the Broad. And within hours had an army of scientists who are ready to combat SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 which we covered in virology. In case that confuses you, I get it. So if only we can use the strengths we have and come together, we'll be in a much better place. So rather than just retweeting the URL to the Google form, I thought we'd make an episode out there for anyone who wants to help, but just doesn't know what to do. And for anyone out there who could use some advice on taking care of their own mental health during this weird time, which we probably all could use. So as disasterologist Dr. Sam Montano said in her episode, People are much more pro-social in a crisis than we expect them to be. That's great news. And in Mr. Rogers' words, Always
1: look for the helpers.
0: So let's chat with a dude with a Google form about how to get involved and hopefully signal boosting this will help get this database into the hands of government agencies that will use it and put it into action. So this is a bonus episode, so it's ad-free, but a donation was still made to the LA Food Bank, and I would not be able to do those things or make the donations to causes each week without the folks at patreon.com/slash ologies. So while I was at it, I asked patrons how people have been helping them, how they are helping family and friends and maybe strangers and for some of their self-help suggestions, which I'm all ears for. And just a heads up, so this episode has fewer asides than usual, just for a much quicker turnaround. And it's more of a raw conversation than most episodes. Also, the first 10 minutes or so, I asked this ologist a bunch of questions about his backstory because he's really amazing and relatable and inspiring. And it's just really interesting. And I want us all to remember that scientists and neighbors and healthcare workers and grocery stalkers are all people with these incredible stories. And the more we remember that, the less alone we feel. So, if you need some updates on this illness and a healthy dose of hope, you have come to the right place. So, hunker down, get cozy, and prepare to feel inspired by the folks out there who have our backs, including de facto community organizer working from an extra desk in his apartment and professional neurobiologist, Dr. Michael F. Wells. for talking to me. Sure, of course. Um, You've had a busy couple of days.
1: Yes, I've not slept much. I'm supposed to be doing other work uh, as a scientist, but I've been focusing on this pretty much nonstop since Wednesday.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about what your work at Harvard entails?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'm a postdoctoral researcher, um, which means I already have my PhD but I don't yet have my own lab. Uh, And so I work for a guy named Kevin Egan at Harvard uh, in the stem cell department. And so what I do is I take human stem cells and I convert them to human brain cells in a dish. Um, Yeah. And if you might wonder where those stem cells came from, we can actually harvest we can actually take cells, say, from uh, your blood or your hair. Some have started taking it from urine, and we can convert those cells into stem cells. And then we can take those cells and make them into many, many different cell types so that we can study diseases in these cell types that are actually impacted by that disease. And so the disease I've been studying for the past four years or so uh, has been the Zika virus uh, infection. So Uh, I take stem cells, and I make them into fetal brain cells, or at least cells that resemble fetal brain cells.
0: So Mike recently made a discovery about how one's genetic background influences your susceptibility to Zika infection. Like, no big deal, just did that. I recently repotted a plant I've kept alive for a year, so I get it. But prior to his work at Harvard, he got his bachelor's in biology at at Notre Dame and his PhD from Duke in neurobiology, working with mouse models, studying the genetics of ADHD and autism. So we're all just a bunch of lumpy brains helping other lumpy brains,
1: sometimes via mice. Just like what are the mechanisms from the gene that leads to uh, the disordered behaviors. Uh, and you actually see some of these behaviors in a mouse. Of course, it's a mouse model. It's not perfect. Uh, and that's partially why when I moved to Harvard for my postdoc in 2015, that I switched to studying human cells in a dish. I was much more interested in studying the human condition. And I also became quite severely allergic to mice <laughs> over the course of the... Yeah. So if you work with mice... For eight hours a day for six years you know they they will get their revenge on you if you don't uh, properly cover your mouth and make sure you're not inhaling all the irritants that they release i can taste it uh so yeah I, I, I can still work with mice it just has to be quite limited interaction with them
0: oh my gosh now did you have a microscope when you were
1: a kid when did you start getting into science uh that's a very good question um there's a book the first book on my bookshelf, mm-hmm. top of the bookshelf, far left. Uh, it's called uh, The Power of Believing in Yourself. Mm-hmm. And it's written by a guy whose name I believe is Spencer Johnson. Um, he uh, wrote this book about Luis Pasteur. Um, and I read this when I was, it, my. it's the first book I remember ever reading. Mm-hmm. But it's about how Louise Pasteur created the treatment for rabies. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh we now have if you get rabies it's no longer a death sentence because of Louis Pasteur's discovery mm-hmm. and so i remember being 5 or 6 years old and just thinking like oh wow this one guy in a lab like dramatically changed the course of human history by eliminating uh, this disease from the list of things that could wipe us out if, if if it spreads. Um, And so that influenced me at a pretty young age, you know, I didn't really come from a a family that had a lot. And so uh, it was mainly through books that I developed this interest in science. And uh, so by the time I was in high school, I was more interested in biology and, and trying to, uh, understand how the human body works and I uh, thought I was going to go to college to prepare for medical school but I quickly realized that I can't see someone having their blood drawn and even talking about it you can hear my voice slowing down and I'm trying not to pass out mm-hmm. uh, and I realized that if I can't see a blood draw. Yeah. I probably shouldn't go into a field in which that is something that you will see commonly. Right. Um, Even if you're not doing it yourself, you will see it. So I, uh, I remember I went home um, for Thanksgiving break while I was a sophomore at the university of Notre Dame. And this is kind of when I realized I I don't want to be a medical doctor. Uh, And so I went home and on my bed was a um, national geographic uh, magazine mm-hmm. and on the cover was a guy with all these electrodes on his head mm-hmm. and so I was like okay I'll do that I'll be a neuroscientist and that's pretty much all the thought that I put into it it was just something that I just I saw a picture I'm like okay I'll do that and <laughs> so I think you're seeing a, a a theme here that I'm easily influenced by uh, media. So who knew that SciComm could
0: change minds in so few steps, just from <laughs> it is it is a very,
1: very powerful uh, medium, and i can 't stress enough how important it is for for people growing up in low income houses like what i uh, how how i grew up i, I didn 't know a scientist until I got to college, and even then i didn 't quite understand what they were doing. Uh, a lot of people growing up the way i did they're just not exposed to these things and don 't even know. One, that it's an option, and two, they don't know what the job entails. And if, if they did know those two things, they don't necessarily know the third factor, which is how to get into uh, this system. Uh, you know, academia is very uh, competitive, and there's a lot of internal challenges you have, just feeling like you belong. I'm actually Salvadoran. My mom's from El Salvador. And I actually never felt like, I mean, you can see in this Skype, I'm not that dark-skinned, like all my family is much tanner than me. I never felt like I was being held back because I was a minority. However, I did feel like I was being held back because I did not come from uh, a, a house that had a, a lot, a lot of money or um, power or whatever whatever, how you refer to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that becomes very challenging in academia because you are working with people whose parents were biochemists or, you know, mathematicians. And, you know, they might come from, from different, uh, from backgrounds that made it a little easier for them to get to where they are and to feel comfortable where they are. And I think that is, you hear this term a lot, imposter syndrome in academia, and it comes from people not feeling that they belong because they see what the backgrounds of those around them in academia. And I do think that the, most powerful way of overcoming that and getting our field beyond that is through early science communication.
0: That said, one kid science show I did for Netflix is called Brainchild, and they have free lesson plans and curricula. If anyone is homeschooling the kiddos now and needs some resources, you can go to brainchildshow.com to download them for free. I'll link that in the show notes in case it helps. Um, also, my science show, Innovation Nation with Mo Rocca, is on Saturday mornings on CBS. And my other show, Did I Mention Invention, is on Saturdays on the CW. Also, Mission Unstoppable, another great science show for kids, particularly girls. I don't work on it, but it's very good. Also, my friend Emily Grasley makes great YouTube videos on her channel Brain Scoop. Dr. Johansson hosts It's Okay to Be Smart for PBS. I love his stuff. My friend Derek Muller hosts Veritasium videos on YouTube. Lepidopterology guest Phil Torres has his Jungle Diaries YouTube series. I'm going to make a list of links in case you need Kid-friendly things to watch that don't have swear words, which I'm trying very hard to avoid in this episode so that you pass it around to other people and we fix this problem. Okay, let's get back to Mike. So he has a manuscript he needs to be working on right now, but he's working from a small office at home to become this community organizer with this project. And he has a little experience in this, having worked on the Obama campaign in 2008, but he did have to cut the job short halfway through his six-week stint because I'm going to let him explain.
1: I mistakenly thought that I had an unlimited phone plan oh, no. and I didn't. Uh, so I remember I was in the field office and I got a call from my mom and she was just like, Mike, we just got a $650 bill from Verizon. Did you make X number of calls? And am like, uh, yeah, but we shouldn't matter, right? She's like, "No, we got rid of that option like 6 months ago." So, no. I was trying to save up for grad school at the point at that point, so I had to quit and I ended up working in a daycare center for the rest of summer teaching kids science.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. that's I guess just consider that a donation to the campaign, right?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. God.
0: Yeah. That's pretty rough. Tell me a little bit about what you're organizing. Do you have a name for it yet?
1: No. Um, I mean the The form is called COVID-19 Pandemic Scientist Volunteer Form. Mm -hmm. Uh, And essentially what I have done is this past Wednesday, so it was whatever that March 18th. Mm -hmm. Yes, March 18th. um, It was the last day that my lab was going to be open for the next two months. Um, I again i i've been studying zika virus for four years now so i have all the skills necessary to perform the covid19 testing and so i was really hoping that at some point as uh, places start ramping up their testing capacities that uh i would have the opportunity to start working uh at a facility to just help out um you know in the efforts and uh so i you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter, and I've seen that there were these sign-up forms in Seattle and in the Bay Area. I later learned there was one that was uh, being widely distributed uh, for the New York area. But what I hadn't seen yet was something for Boston, and I hadn't seen anything that was trying to aggregate all these different sources into one central location. And so essentially what I did was I created a form in which I'm asking for contact information from scientists, uh, asking them if they have experience in certain techniques that are required for testing and then ask them if they have any sort of reagents or kits or equipment that they can donate uh, to these testing facilities. So
0: now remember, he just started this on Wednesday and I talked to him yesterday, which was Friday evening.
1: So that was about 50 hours ago. Mm -hmm. And we now have 3,368 respondents. Oh my God. Uh, Yeah. So these scientists were very, very eager to help out. Like we're, we're doing our, you know, again, a lot of us are at home right now. We have the skills. We just need to be, uh, you know, added to the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I do want to say something about how uh, this spread so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's primarily I need to give uh, some credit to a few people. Um, one is my friend, Justin Beretta, who is uh, in the band uh, Glitch Mob. They're like an EDM group. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is a musician based in LA. Her name is Elohim. Uh, and another is my friend, Michael Angelakis, who's the lead singer of the band Passion Pit. Oh. What I did was after I created the form, I texted them and said, I'm about to post something on Twitter. Can you please retweet it? Mm-hmm. So it is their audience. And you know they have thousands and thousands of followers. Yeah. Uh, and then... Justin actually then reached out to a a man by the name of Tim Ferriss, who has 1.6 million followers. So once that happened, he retweeted it, and then Drew Carey, a comedian that I've adored since I was a child, uh, he retweeted. So it reached a very, very wide audience. And then you, of course, uh, retweeted uh, my efforts a few hours later. So it reached a very wide audience and a in a, a very short period of time, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's what really helped accelerate this. Uh, because then, once those scientists started filling out the form, they then sent it to other scientists that they know.
0: So essentially, your your viral form went viral, also. Yes, exactly. <laughs> which is like wonderful when it's something good, but also a terrifying display of how quickly something can
1: spread. How quickly? I mean, as I'm watching this form being uh, filled out in real time you do see i mean it's been exponential it's been 40 hours you know we went from 30 responses in the first 20 minutes to you know i think by last night there's about 1500 and now there's an additional uh wow. few thousand today so it is growing exponentially obviously it's gonna hit a plateau once all the scientists who do, do have these abilities are reached and they fill out the form if they're uh willing to so it will hit a plateau hopefully that um uh, hopefully that doesn't happen until it's reached a, a, as wide an audience as possible.
0: As of my recording these asides on Saturday night, he now has 4,763 scientists from 49 states, Puerto Rico and Guam. And of course, I asked him which state was lagging. I see you, 49. And I guessed Idaho. I'm sorry, Idaho. But no, you ready for this? It's Wyoming. Wyoming? Come on. Someone from Wyoming just Pull up the fricking caboose. The tiny URL for the Google form, by the way, is tinyurl.com slash COVID-19 volunteers. And no, you do not have to write that down. It's linked in the show notes. Wyoming.
1: Good luck. We're all counting on you.
0: And now let's talk a little bit about how testing is done. I mean, you work with Zika, so you're familiar with viruses uh, that are zoonotic in origin. How How do you even test for COVID-19 and why isn't it happening?
1: So those are two different issues, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, so to answer your first question, how the, the basic test for the presence of a virus um, is you get the sample, and that could be spit, it could be these nose swabs that you're seeing on TikTok that look extremely painful, mm-hmm. where they're put in that thing way back there. Yeah. Uh, but what they're trying to do is they're trying to get a sample from your body, that either does or does not have the virus. And these are areas that if you did have the virus, it's likely the virus be present you know, in your spit. It's likely to be present uh, in the back of your nose. The reason for that is for this virus in particular, it tends to infect the respiratory system. We would take that sample, um, and in this case, it's RNA. Uh, this is an RNA virus. Uh, So you may be aware of what DNA is. I think most people know what DNA is. RNA is what the DNA becomes. When you're trying to make a protein, you have this intermediate step of RNA. So this virus is just an RNA virus. It's pretty much what is being transferred from one person to another. It's a piece of RNA that is encapsulated by an envelope. Mm -hmm. And this is why when you wash your hands, you kill the virus because that envelope gets degraded uh, by soap. Mm -hmm. And RNA does not last a very long time without that envelope. So this is why it's so important to wash your hands. So essentially what happens is we then uh, will take that sample, uh, extract the RNA, and that's a very key step that I'll get to in a second. We extract the RNA, we convert it back to DNA, and then we run what's called a polymerase chain reaction. So you might have heard of PCR. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone won a Nobel Prize in 1993, I believe, for creating this machine that amplifies DNA.
0: Okay, so I wasn't going to look this up. This was supposed to be a mini-sode, but you know what? We're in this, and frankly... A lot of us have nowhere to be, so I googled who the winner of the 1993 Nobel Prize in chemistry was, and it turns out it was the best decision I've made so far in quarantine since buying several tins of smoked trout. So according to his sadly recent 2019 obituary in the LA Times, Carrie B. Mullis was an LSD dropping, climate change denying, astrology believing, surfing, Nobel Prize winning chemist who was both widely respected and equally criticized for his controversial views. So what did he do? All right. His history changing process involves taking a segment of DNA and heating it until it unzips and then looking for a specific segment of DNA and then zipping it back together via an enzyme or polymerase with free floating building blocks, the A-G- T-C nucleotides, and then doing a chain reaction of that so that each copy makes two copies and so on and so on, and you're able to replicate a ton of that segment. So a polymerase chain reaction, PCR. Now, Mullis came up with the idea while driving down the highway, just came up with this idea that changed the world. He once said, quote, I think really good science doesn't come from hard work. The striking advances come from the people on the fringes being playful he playfully said from the fringes. Side note, he was drunk the morning he found out that he won the Nobel Prize alongside chemist Michael Smith, who was probably not drunk. Mullis then celebrated the win by going surfing. I am trying so hard not to swear during this episode, so mm, hot dog. What a life. Maybe let that be a lesson to just chill out while in isolation. Don't work so hard. Play horseshoes. Learn an Irish jig. Just get high and eat some raw biscuit dough. Read a novel you don't think you deserve to. Either way, you're avoiding the virus. You might even end up winning a Nobel Prize. Just don't surf drunk, I guess. Now, what if you're sick? How does the test
1: work? So, let's say you have the virus in your system. We take a spit sample. We then extract the RNA from your spit sample. And when we run the PCR, it'll tell us if that RNA was actually present in the spit. And the way it's usually done is with a machine that's more quantitative than just a standard PCR. And what this does is it incorporates a green dye into the DNA as it's being replicated, as it's being amplified by the system. And then after every cycle that it runs, it will take a picture and it will measure the intensity of that dye. And Usually usually it's green. Mm -hmm. So it'll tell you how much green fluorescence is present in this system, in your well. And then you can use that green readout as a way of measuring the amount of viral RNA present in the sample. So that is the basic uh, testing system that is in play right now. It's Mm -hmm. looking at whether or not viral RNA is present in the sample. Having said that, as a result of the uh, national emergency being declared, there are now loosened restrictions on the types of protocols you can use to test for COVID-19. And so some universities have found ways that are much faster than the thing I just described to you. And so they are in the process of getting approval through the FDA, through their state and local um, authorities, to use that as a test in their community. And so I do anticipate that uh, we're going to actually learn a lot about uh, ways, different ways to test for these viruses to, to make these tests uh, more efficient, because the need is so clear right now uh, for us to do this very quickly and, and, and safely and uh, accurately. Um, so that's what's going on right now with the testing. If, if you want to know why there are no tests going on. That's the million dollar question. Uh, there are, but they're not where they need to be.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, that's primarily, from what I've heard, an issue with the lack of reagents. So that RNA extraction step, mm-hmm. which is for most protocols, it's the first step. Those are uh, usually made available through a kit. Uh, and the most commonly used is this kit from a company called Kyogen, which is based in Europe. There are very, very few Chiagen kits available uh, for these labs. Um, and so one of the things we include, cl- include in the database was uh, a question that we asked all these scientists, do you have RNA extraction kits that you're willing to donate uh, from your lab to a facility that is currently testing and in need of those types of kits?
0: Lawmakers, holler. Are you in government? Could you use a list of scientists willing to chip in and help out? Well, here it is free for the taking. So let's speed this business up. Get some swabs up some holes, stat. And why do some tests I'm hearing take like five days to get back right now? Is that because of the availability of the reagents?
1: I think it's available to the reagents as well as the backlog of tests that need to be done. Mm. Uh, So I'm not actually working in these facilities. So I can't speak directly to that. But if you don't have enough kits, or you don't have the capacity to do so, some of these places can only run, you know, anywhere from I'm seeing some that can only run 20 kits a day or or 20 samples a day. Uh, And so if there are 100 people in line, then it could take up to five days to get your results. And that's clearly not good. That is not going to be helpful. If you look at what happened in Wuhan and how they uh, eventually got control over the virus to the point where they're now having very few new cases uh, each day. Part of it was because of a very aggressive testing system they put in place in which they would actually go door to door and determine if someone is showing symptoms. And if they were showing symptoms, they would uh, administer a test right there and get them the results back as quickly as possible. We are nowhere near that um, in this country. And, you know, even with that aggressive approach that they took, which also included something called centralized quarantining, even with that aggressive approach, they still are not looking at a coronavirus-free environment until mid-May. Mm-hmm. And they had the outbreak start in January. So even then, it's taking them five months to get rid of this thing. Mm-hmm. We, are all, we are just now in the early stages of this, and we are not being as aggressive as them. So it, it, it's likely this is going to last longer than what took place in China.
0: And this is a stupid question, but why were they able to do those door-to-door tests? How did they have such an availability of kits? Is that partly from the SARS infrastructure from
1: 2002? Uh, It's it's possible. I don't know the exact answer of that question. Um, They might not even have made that information available. I'm not entirely for sure. I know that for Wuhan, they had a lot of um, scientists and doctors from outside the Wuhan region aggregate into Wuhan to help out with this. Mm-hmm. It's also possible they had their own manufacturing facilities to, to make the RNA extraction kits. And it's not just Chiagen that makes these kits. There's a lot of them out there, um, which is something that uh, kind of makes it a little more challenging as well because different facilities in the United States are using different kits. They're using different qPCR reagents, different machines. All It's kind of all over the place right now. There's no real agreed upon protocol.
0: And what types of scientists can help pitch in.
1: So this is what's really nice about this. And this is why we have now 3,387 respondents <laughs> uh, is the fact that these techniques are things that most life scientists learn very early on in their careers. RNA extraction is a first step of many, many different uh, procedures you run uh, at any given time in a laboratory. Uh, PCR is a, it's a hallmark Uh, procedure for so many things we do. So for I mean, PCR was the first thing I learned in lab when I doing a rotation at Duke University, the absolute first thing I learned was PCR. And so, you know, this is not something where you need a PhD to do. There are technicians who show up, who are undergraduates at a university who immediately learn these things. I had a high school student in our lab two or three years ago who uh, was able to run qPCR you know, in his first week. Let's say
0: that we can go ahead and do this. Like, it's go time. How do they make sure if they're voluntarily doing this that they're not used, getting contaminated by samples or they're That's- keeping their own health in check?
1: Yeah. That's a very important question, and that's uh, why a lot of these facilities will, uh, from what I've been hearing, they're actually training these people. There are certain certifications you need to receive in order to work with uh, potentially infectious samples. Uh, and so I've seen that in some places they're just doing one or two day training sessions to get everybody up to speed. So when they go in there, they're not um, you know, putting themselves at risk. Uh, so that is something that each facility is uh, presumably going to take care of. That is something that's heavily regulated for good reason. So there, it's much more regulated. They are much more stringent with uh, certain aspects of the procedures. Um, and so, you know, this is why, again, you don't want to just hire anybody off the street to do this. Um, ideally, you'd pick some someone from this 3,392 person list <laughs> who already has experiencing these techniques and and we'll be able to pick it up very very quickly
0: and now what about access to some labs in these kinds of extenuating circumstances if you're working um with very few individuals in a lab you're keeping six and a half feet apart nobody's slobbering on anyone is it okay to sneak back into your lab and do a little punk rock testing
1: so that's a good question um to be clear, not all labs around the country have closed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harvard was one of the first. I think they've actually followed suit from University of Washington and Stanford. So the West Coast kind of started this idea of trying to de-densify laboratory settings. The rest of the country that does have their labs shut down, including Harvard, uh, what essentially we're doing is... There is a very, very small number of people who do have access to the lab, uh, and it's very limited. So I was chosen from my lab to be that person. I will be going in tomorrow. I can be there for three hours. I can feed this specific, uh, set of cells and then I have to leave. Mm. And they regulate all this because most of these buildings have key cards. So they can, they can toggle my access. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I couldn't, for example, just walk in right now because I'm not authorized to go in on this date.
0: So a lot of labs right now are authorizing certain people for specific times. That way they can avoid close contact or running into each other. Now, Mike agrees with those tactics. He thinks we have to stamp the virus out as quickly as possible so it's not endemic or just kind of loitering around. Is part of a new way of life until there's a vaccine. And are there any vaccine researchers or scientists that have signed up to say, like, put me in coach?
1: So I did include on this form a option to select whether or not you have any experience in vaccine development. Mm -hmm. And the reason I've added that is because I didn't want this list to just be useful for near term testing. I wanted it to be available to anybody who may need it in you know six months from now, in order to identify people who might be able to help with later stages of uh, fighting this virus. Having said that, there are a lot of companies and a lot of organizations building uh, the infrastructure for vaccines, and they are. They're, I'm sure you're aware that uh, earlier this week they've already started testing this in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, one of the vaccines is available. Hopefully, it works. Um, I will say that vaccine development is a, is very tricky. There are viruses out there that we still don't have good vaccines for. So, uh, you know, there's no vaccine for Zika, even though there's a lot of interest in developing that. Uh, And so when Dr. Fauci says that we are 12 to 18 months away from a vaccine, I think that's accurate because it's not just developing the vaccine, it's testing it, making sure it's safe and effective, and then it's mass producing it.
0: Right. And, you know, you work with mosquito-borne illnesses you have in the past with Zika. Uh, What is the hope with the anti-malarial drugs fighting a virus? Uh, I
1: don't. So like chloroquine, I think I've been yeah. hearing. So I don't really know. I mean, chloroquine seems to be one of those magic drugs that works on everything in the laboratory. Uh, you know, it works at killing everything in the laboratory. Um, I have seen many different um, uh, theories out there, and some that have more support than others, uh, experimentally, about drugs that could work. In fact, uh, a paper just got published while I was waiting for your call uh-huh. in Cell. And this, you know, sells a huge journal and there's certain clinically approved protease that helps uh, cleave parts of the viral envelope uh, and in doing so prevents the attachment of the virus to lung cells. But, you know, I could also list 100 drugs that will probably work on Zika. There is a bottleneck from what we find in the laboratory and what actually makes it to patients. And there's a lot of things that can stop that from happening. It could be that the drug... You know, it might work in a dish, but the second you put it into a human being, it goes to their liver, it stops working. Mm. Um, It could be that it actually causes more harm than good. There are some things that we look at in a dish and it says, hey, this looks like this drug will reduce infection and ends up makes makes you more prone to infection or makes you more susceptible to a bacteria or something. So there are all these different aspects of it that are very hard to predict. Chloroquine has been around for a long time it'd be nice if it worked for this. But I still think, you know, before doctors in the United States start prescribing it, there's probably um, other hurdles that need to be passed before they can start doing that. Yeah.
0: Side note, I looked into this, and the president has been all caps tweeting about this anti-malarial that's also used for rheumatoid and autoimmune conditions like lupus. But according to an article in Slate, in his tweet, lavishing hope on this treatment, Trump cited a scientific journal that only studied 20 patients and was not a controlled clinical trial. But regardless, people are clamoring now to get this drug with several reported accidental overdoses on it, while also leaving the patients who actually need it for autoimmune disorders not able to find it. What is my point? It's cool your jets. Let's all cool our jets on this. So far, it's in the flim flam bucket until there's some actual proof of efficacy. Right now, what people need is to isolate not get or spread the virus. And for people who may be carriers, access to actual testing. And now, what if people have items that they can donate from their lab? What kind of things are you guys looking for?
1: So from what I've been hearing is the most precious thing are these viral RNA extraction kits. And there's many on the market, but again, there's very few that are currently available. So we are trying to make that available to people um, by having access to the d- database. They can see which labs in their area actually have a kit available for them. Uh, and then I, they through the database, they can make direct contact with that individual and say, okay, what kind of kit? Is it expired? Is mm-hmm. it been unopened? So right now they really want unopened Unexpired kits. That could change five months from now where they become more desperate for these kits. It could be that we don't care if it's been opened. We just really, really need this kit right now. Uh, So I've anticipated that sort of need, which is why I didn't ask people, do you have an unopened, unexpired kit? Uh I just had a blanket question, do you have this kit that you're willing to donate?
0: Mike says that in the other section of the Google form, people can say if they have PPE, which is not a disease, it means personal protective equipment that they can donate. So gloves, N95 masks, face shields. One physician, Dr. Josh Lerner, posted an open letter on his Facebook page today that went viral. Or went epidemiological, I should say, in response to the CDC loosening their guidelines for healthcare workers on the front lines. And I'm going to read part of his letter because it felt like getting kicked in the stomach by a horse, but it also woke me up a lot. So Dr. Josh Lerner said, please don't tell me that in the richest country in the world in the 21st century, I'm supposed to fashion my own face mask out of a cloth because other Americans hoard supplies for personal use and so-called leaders sit around in meetings hearing themselves talk. I ran to a bedside the other day to intubate a crashing likely COVID patient. Two respiratory therapists and two nurses were already at the bedside. That's five N95 masks, five gowns, five face shields, and 10 gloves for one patient at one time. I probably saw 15 to 20 patients that shift. If we're going to start rationing supplies, what percentage should I wear precautions for? Make no mistake, the CDC is loosening these guidelines because our country is not prepared. Sending healthcare workers to the front line, asking them to cover their face with a bandana is akin to sending a soldier to the front line in a t-shirt and flip-flops. I don't want talk. I don't want assurances. I want action. I want boxes of N95s piling up, donated from the people who hoarded them. I want billion-dollar companies like 3M halting all production of any product that isn't PPE to focus on PPE manufacturing. I want Procter and Gamble and the makers of other soaps and detergents stepping up too. We need detergent to clean scrubs, hospital linens, and gowns. We need disinfecting wipes to clean desk and computer surfaces. What about plastics manufacturers? Plastic gowns aren't some high-tech device. They are long shirts, smocks made out of plastic. Get on it let's go. Money talks in this country. He says, executive millionaires, why don't you spend a few bucks to buy back some of these masks from the hoarders and then drop them off at the nearest hospital? We need to divert viral culture media for COVID testing and research. Netflix and chill, he says, is not enough. While my family, friends and colleagues are out there fighting. Our country won two world wars because the entire country mobilized. We outproduced and we outmanufactured while our soldiers outfought the enemy. We need to do that again, because make no mistake, we are at war. Healthcare workers are your soldiers and the war has just begun. So that was a letter from Dr. Josh Lerner, who is a pediatric ER doctor. So the folks on the front lines need help and we can help by sharing info and making some noise so our government takes action. What would be your dream in terms of who picks up the database, like what would be the best case scenario of where all this information that you have now collected over the course of 50 hours
1: goes? Uh, I would love if this got into the hands of a federal agency that they can then uh, distribute to, uh, you know, health officials at the state level, at the county level, at the city level. I don't have. That infrastructure. I do not know all these people throughout the country who, you know, may be in need of this right now. So ideally, it would be something that comes from the top and it just gets, you know, just trickles down to all these other agencies. Um, in lieu of that, I am doing my best to contact uh, state officials, basically just cold emailing them and saying like, hey, I have this thing. You may need it in the future. I'm, I'm more than happy to give you access to it. I just need to know who to give it, who exactly needs it. Yeah. Um, so that's honestly been the hardest part so far. Uh, obviously, the response from 3,411 people came very quickly. But so far, I've only been able to share this database with health officials in Massachusetts and North Carolina. Um, I, I'm also working with a group in New York who has been uh, using it because they're setting up uh, organizational groups in New York to help recruit these scientists. Uh, and I'm also working with an organization known as End Coronavirus. Uh, so they're endcoronavirus.org. And we're trying to find ways to distribute these this database to uh, others. We've built this thing. I really want it to be in the hands of people who can turn this database into action. But this is actually the first Google form I've ever made. So <laughs> I'm kind of learning as I go along on how to run this thing. <laughs> That's it. This is... Uh, <sighs>
0: success on your Google Forms. So when in doubt, I don't know, make a Google Form. I'm feeling inspired as hell to make some spreadsheet databases, people. Um, I also messaged my good friend and your favorite diabetic diabetologist, Dr. Mike Natter, on how people could help. And he said, well, if people have boxes of N95 masks, that would be ideal. He said, if you see a healthcare worker in a coffee shop or bodega, offer to buy them something. He clearly is a New Yorker. Also, you can send electronic gift cards or food to hospital staffs. I did that today with Dr. Natter's team, and he FaceTimed me from the nurse's station saying thank you, which was completely unnecessary. But in the background, one of the nurses stepped into frame in full PPE, mask, face shield, gown, and it was so surreal. It just looked like a scene from a movie. And these people are literally risking their lives to save ours. So just like buy them a fricking panini, you know? But Dr. Natter stresses that you should not go to the hospital to drop anything off. Contact the hospital via phone or email first to ask what you can deliver and how. But yes, electronic gift cards for dinner, clutch. Now, I also asked y'all what you advised how to help in these times. And I put this up on my Patreon and just a deluge of great ideas came up. So I thought I would read some of them off because there are so many things I didn't even know or think about. So let's get right into it. So when it comes to donating something, What better resource than your own hot, squishy, sloshy bag of blood? So patrons Ashley Herbal, William Andrews, and Aubrey LaBear said, Hospitals and the American Red Cross is in desperate need of blood donations. They've had to cancel donating events, and a good chunk of their regular donors are 60 and older, Aubrey said. So if you can, and it's safe to do so, you can please donate to your local blood bank. You can call ahead and ask about their protocol if that's a concern. Now, if you are afraid of some needles... But not other types of needles. So what? You can sew masks. A ton of patrons, including Joe Alexander, Shirley Dark, William Pence, Amanda Richards, Maria Kumro, Heather Allens, Laura Schulte, suggest grabbing some fabric, nice looking fabric, and looking up patterns online and seeing if you can churn out some face masks. Now, are these cloth masks as effective as N95s? No. Of course not, but they're better than literally nothing. Now, some healthcare workers are being asked to use one mask for days and days at a time in some hospitals, when usually they would be changed out after each patient. And Natalie Mastic says, adding on to this, my friend has been making masks for her husband and his colleagues in the ER. There is definitely a need for them. And she recommends making some for some other hospitals, but checking on their needs prior to dropping anything off. Now, what if you don't sew? But you have a three D printer. Well, my cousin Nate Bronick is a bit of a maker himself, and suggested looking into the maker community pages to see if there are any face shield needs locally that you can help fabricate. He says there are several groups that are trying to three D print masks or face shields for local healthcare providers, so you can Google that, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But wait, what's that? What? You have actual real medical gear just lying around because you're really into some creepy cosplay or maybe you stockpiled and you feel bad now. Don't feel ashamed. Zach Strickland, a patron, wrote in and said, my mom is an RN and a director of clinics for our rural hospital system. If you have any PPE you could donate, gloves, masks, anything, contact your local clinic and see if they could use it. Masks do not have to be N95 to be of use to healthcare staff, Zach says. Eric Polk also wrote in and says, I'm an RN in an emergency room. Oh, thank you, Eric. And I can confirm the need for PPE is critical. Masks are normally used once per patient and then discarded. But due to the current shortage, he says, we are using the same mask for 12 hours countless patients. So please, if you have PPE, contact your local hospital. It's a desperate need. What about those close to you, like in your community? Well, patron Scott Sheldon says, I have several elderly or immunocompromised individuals near me, and I'm heading to the store tomorrow morning to get what they need. Scott says, this isn't a blizzard to prepare for. It's a winter or even longer. And patrons Kathleen Sachs, Julia Heyman, Rachel Lynn seconded this. Charmaine H. wrote in, great story, said, share your stuff. They said, I ordered from Who Gives a Crap at the beginning of the year and still had about 30 to 40 toilet rolls left, so I have divided them up and given them to my family members as most of my family is classed as vulnerable and at risk of getting COVID-19. And I'm disabled, so whilst there's not much I can do, I'm trying to find ways of helping them. And by giving them this toilet paper, it means they can now stay home. You can't spare three squares? No, I don't have a square to spare. I can't spare a square. I'm down to three rolls, but... (laughs) I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. Others mentioned to keep an eye out for WIC items at the grocery store. WIC stands for women, infants, and children, and it's a program to make sure that food-insecure kiddos and pregnant folks get the food they need. Adam Weaver said, avoid buying things labeled WIC. We can switch to a different brand, but people that depend on WIC can't. So keep an eye out for that in the grocery store when you're buying things. Speaking of vittles, if you can donate a little to a food bank, do so. I just found out today a hundred bucks makes 400 meals. So just think a $25 donation to a food bank could get a hundred people dinner. Now you can also check with your local ones to see if they're taking any items if you have extra stuff in your pantry. Tyler Q and Antonio Oliveras, Kayla Simpson, Nadia Jackson, Chloe W all suggested this and Adam Weaver simply said, local food pantries are really hurting. Please donate what you can. A bunch of patrons also suggested putting your money where your mouth isn't and shopping local, even if you're just getting gift cards or delivery from nearby restaurants just to keep them in business. Heather McNernan and Kat Lindsay both said simply, shop local. Chelsea is also doing this. And Dale Lamaster wrote in and said, being retired, my income is fixed. So I send checks to local small businesses for the amounts I would have been spending with them, if not for social distancing. Dale also says, keep calm and carry on loving and living. Now, for a straight up direct deposit effect on people, a lot of folks are Venmoing others who could use a little cash. R.D. Lang is using Venmo. Michael Pescura says, I suggest visiting GoFundMe to look for campaigns to help your local restaurant and hospitality workers who have lost their employment during this miserable epidemic. And Nadine Duke says, I'm a waitress, or was before four days ago, and my fellow service folk and I have got a lot of GoFundMe pages and the like, and we're all being very good about sharing each other's stuff on Facebook and Instagram feeds. Not many of us can afford to donate to each other, but we'll be sharing the hell out of each other. We service folk may seem like a bunch of degenerates, but damn, do we have each other's back when the COVID hits the fan, Nadine says. Megan Yount says, yes, I love this so much. And Rob Hover said that the people who provide support to those who work in office buildings likely need help too. Like the incredibly kind shoeshine man that works in our lobby. Our office took up a collection and with a lot of contributors, we were able to put together enough to at least help him scrape by for a week or so. And what if you're like, Ward, I am not flush with cash. I'm freaking out about it. I get it. I get it a thousand percent. Now, if you want to volunteer your time for zero dollars somehow, Chase Penix and Michelle Krebs started websites or Facebook groups where people can connect and share resources. You can also volunteer, like, Chris Calderelli says Meals on Wheels needs volunteers, and I checked with Meals on Wheels, and right now they are really in need of food delivery drivers, as well as people who can perform welfare checks on older folks. Now, if you would like to volunteer, but not see or get near other human beings, understood. Meals on Wheels said it could also use people willing to write cards or create gift boxes to show seniors currently in isolation that there are people who care. Oh, you can do that. Just contact Meals on Wheels. And patron Misha Kovalchuk says that if you're an ologist who wants to volunteer from afar, ologists, they say, share your expertise with some kiddos via video conference. Krista Ovenpato, a patron, said, I'm chatting with a fourth grade class about biomimicry work and also the nonprofit Skype a Scientist run by your favorite squid expert toothologist Sarah McAdulty is amazing at connecting brainiacs with kiddos. So look into Skype a Scientist too. Now consider your skills. What have you to offer others? Well, patron Helen Babawash has a lot and says, I volunteered to file income tax returns for low-income Indigenous families. Although our government extended the tax filing deadline, Helen says, low-income families still need to file to ensure that they continue receiving the most benefits they can get. So I'll file their tax return electronically and email them a PDF copy of their tax return. Thank you, Helen Babawash. That rules. Let's talk animals. Patron Nathaniel Cossey is doing... Whatever their dog wants to do. I second that. I'm holding my dog right now as I record these asides. Ashley Curtin and Rob Hoover say that shelters are closing down and volunteers can't be there. So... Consider maybe fostering a pet for a while. Maybe you'll adopt it. Maybe you won't, but foster it. Just do it. Joni Waldrop says, if you know someone who's in a more precarious financial position than you are who also has pets, consider maybe buying them some pet food or litter or whatever supplies they might need. What a treat. Help Mr. Whiskers. Now, how can we make sure that the humans who take care of humans are taken care of? Whew. Thank your healthcare workers. Ariella O23 says that their mom is a nurse near Seattle. Oof. And the nurses got a note recently written to them from a patient that was so heartfelt that her mom teared up. She said it felt so good to be seen. So something so simple helped them all keep going. So consider writing a note to your healthcare provider or fire department, or favorite small business, Ariella says, and give them a, I see you, you've got this. Megan Guthrie and Sapphira echoed this, and Sapphira added, Also, please remember that in addition to doctors and nurses, healthcare is also leaning heavily on the less visible people who are equally important, like the dietary staff who feed our patients, and the maintenance and housekeeping staff who are working around the clock to keep up with the requirements to keep everyone as safe as possible. That's a great point. Sapphira also added, wash your hands. Another great point. So yes, take care of others and take care of yourself let's talk self-care. I was like, patrons, what are we doing for self-care? Let's talk about it. And patron Esther Cohen says, I think self-care truly varies person to person. For some folks, it's sitting and watching Netflix all day. For some folks, it's structure and scheduling. For me, Esther says, setting a schedule with achievable tasks each day and walking, walking, walking for hours on end has been soothing. Kelly King has been rearranging furniture and has plans to paint the living room. And yesterday, while walking the dog, they made a short video tour and shared it to a mental health group they belong to. Since, they say, I know many people are unable to leave their homes. A virtual walk, if you will. Now, in terms of hitting the pavement... Other patrons are like, heck yeah. Mike Monikowski says, I've taken a page from how incarcerated people deal with being confined by working out at home. And I found that exercise actually does help with depression. It gives you something to do when you'd normally be doing something else. Even without equipment, there are thousands of exercise plans and video lessons available online for every level of experience and preference, ranging from calming yoga to calisthenics screamed at you by a drill sergeant. And side note, May I suggest Jarrett Sleeper's Quarantine Calisthenics? Every day at noon Pacific time, my wonderful man friend is leading a workout on Instagram Live, no equipment needed, and he is usually in short shorts. So if you tune in, you're going to get a good workout. You'll also see me in the background or me leaving saucy, embarrassing comments as I work out in another room. So Jarrett underscore sleeper on Instagram, quarantine calisthenics, every day Pacific at noon on St. Patrick's Day. He wore one of my green t-shirts as a half shirt, and then he gave orders in a leprechaun voice. Get into it. It's a trying time. I love it. Now for a more mellow experience, RT Lang says that they just get an early cup of coffee and go for a morning walk while no one's outside. And Kelly King says, I've been making sure to do yoga or Tai Chi daily for my mental health. Heather Densmore says that their yoga class moved to the beach so that they can stay at least six feet away from each other. That sounds amazing. Now, if you're not near a beach, but you're near a screen, everyone says online parties have just been getting their extroversion itch scratched. Stephanie Bergerdes, Sarah Nichelle, Julie Bear, Julie Brown, Angela Scarduzio, RT Lang all say they're video chatting. The Google Chrome extension Netflix party, that's where all of your friends watch a Netflix thing at the same time and can comment on it. It's kind of like you're in a movie theater, only you're allowed to talk. And if you throw popcorn, you have to clean it up. There's also the Amazon Chime portal or there's Zoom. You can always go old school and FaceTime. I've been doing that. What if you need to disconnect? No screens, you say. Write a letter, says M. And Liz Ropke says that they have been doing this too because it's always nice to just get a letter in the mail. And this way, you don't have to be on your phone to communicate if you don't want to be. Liz also adds, anyone interested in an Ologies pen pal group? If you're on the Facebook group, the Ologies podcast Facebook group, there is an address swap there. Y'all can write each other letters if you like. I love that idea. I think it's cute as hell. Now, Suzanne K chimed in to say, I hope this is not too late. Suzanne K, no, it's not. Along the lines of self-care, Suzanne says, I've been listening to a podcast called Mindful 15, apps or podcasts that are guided to help with relaxing your body, and adds, don't forget the beauty around you. That's a great idea, Suzanne K. Maybe write a poem about it, or you could journal. Mariah McGregor says, I've been journaling to both help me sort out my feelings, but also... In the after times, firsthand accounts will be helpful for future generations to understand the situation. Mariah says, whether you donate the journal to an archive in 20 years, or just have something around to refresh your memory to tell stories to young ones, it's an important part of the historical record. Wow, what a time we're living in. Will we want to remember it? Probably once some time passes. Conchetta Gibson says, I started journaling specifically to document what's going on locally and to sort through my thoughts, but it's done wonders for helping me keep track of what day even it is. Other creative outlets, Conchetta says, are helping too, like painting and Minecraft. You know what? Maybe it's Minecraft. Maybe it's getting lost in comedies. Scott Sheldon says, it's okay to laugh. It's okay to laugh even at our current situation. Being able to uncontrollably cackle is a great medicine to boost your morale immune system. You know what else is? Sparkly lights. Ben McNall says, there's a thing people are doing in my hometown in Canada, putting up Christmas lights again so families can drive around without contact and enjoy family time. So as long as everyone's feeling lonely and no one will see you for several weeks, there's never been a better time to cut bangs and text your crush. Grow out a mustache or your pit hair for fun or shave the back of your head. Shave the front of your head. Will Plewa says, I shaved off my beard so I can get fit tested for an N95 mask. I was an ICU nurse a few years back, so I'm going to be ready to get back in the trenches. It is a war, and we'll win it by working together, and I salute you all. I also messaged with my good friend Colleen Flanagan. I've known her since we were 12, and she's a nurse in Northern California. She's currently home on sick leave with what she calls a beast of a lung infection, a fever and fatigue. She says it's worse than when she got the swine flu and pneumonia. So she's awaiting her COVID-19 test results, but she's pretty sure she's got it. And I asked what people could do. And she sent me a link to a National Nurses United petition urging Congress to help nurses get the protection they need. But Colleen also sent me this message, which was So beautiful and chilling. She said, a little perspective for those who aren't sick and don't have to risk their lives and health at their job. Self-care and societal care advice. If you're not sick, feel blessed for your wellness. Don't obsess or worry about if you become sick. Don't obsess about getting a test if you're not sick. If you're sick of being indoors, feel blessed you're indoors and not homeless. If you're blessed enough to have a deck, patio, window, enjoy your private fresh air. If you're blessed enough to be well, enjoy the extra time to do things you love and communicate with people you love. If you've ever wanted to try yoga, now is a good time. Good for the body, mind, soul, and community. Thinking beyond ourselves is the key to getting through this in many ways. And what does an ologist want non-ologists to do? Is there anything else? Any If someone is not a scientist, um, and they can't run these tests, is there any other way that they can help or donate or or any kind of
1: words of wisdom for people who are like, I want to do something? Honestly, the best thing people can do is stay at home. Um, We really need to be vigilant with our social distancing. Uh, I know it's hard. I know it's terrible. I mean, I've been wearing the same sweatpants for three days. (laughs) Um, I have been showering, so there's that. (laughs) Uh, But I know how difficult it is to be cooped up at home in this little dark room, just plugging away and it feels awful. Um, And, you know, we're in it for much longer than three days. And we have the added anxiety of the fact that there's something going around killing people, potentially people, you know, potentially people in your family. Um, So I know it's tough, but the best thing you can do is just stay away from other people as much Mm -hmm. as you can. Um, because so many cases are asymptomatic. I think the estimate from China was between 80 and 85% (sighs) of the cases were asymptomatic. This is not like other viruses. This is something that you can be infected for two whole weeks and have no idea, but that whole time you can be spreading it to other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have never seen anything like this in the United States. It's my hope we never see anything like it again. So yeah, my advice to people was just to stay home and you know, watch you watch your show on Netflix, uh, 100 Cubans. Just came out the other day. I just saw that. Congratulations. Oh,
0: thanks. <laughs> ah, yes. Me wearing a lab coat I don't deserve to be in, asking strangers on camera about their toilet habits. I'm the real hero here, people. Excited to receive word of my Nobel Peace Prize one morning between my breakfast margarita and my celebratory surf session. But really, other people can make a difference. You can make a difference.
1: We're really hoping that this turns into something. It, it really would be a shame if we we did this level of organization and weren't actually able to turn it into action. Uh, and so that's where I really need our nations' leaders, our local leaders, to to yeah. help out with, at this at this point.
0: And is there any flimflam, any myth about testing that you'd like to debunk?
1: Um, I mean, there is something being spread by our federal leaders saying that testing is ongoing and there's no setbacks, that's absolutely false. We are not anywhere near the testing levels that we should be. So, you know, there are some silver linings to this. There are already countries that have done a fairly good job of keeping this under control and reducing uh, the spread. Um, so, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. You know, We can get through this, but we really, really need to start um, behaving differently. We all need to Stay inside. We need to be constantly washing our hands whenever we go outside and come back. Keep your distance from people, six feet at least. If you do have to go in public, try to keep that distance. Uh, I learned how to wash my hands as a result of this outbreak. I didn't know that my whole life I've been doing it incorrectly. I know. Uh, and now I know like, oh, yeah, you should probably clean it with your fingernails by like scraping them against your palm and yeah, all those your other thumbs. Things.
0: Your thumbs. Who knew? that thumbs. Like, you you got to milk exactly. your thumbs. I, 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 exactly. This I whole time. <laughs> I never <laughs> knew that.
1: I never knew I was supposed to be milking my thumbs this whole time.
0: Milk your thumbs. Milk them. Milk them. And when you do, think of me standing right next to you. Whispering, milk those thumbs Who needs a 20 second song, right? Actually, speaking of a gritty little ditty Have you seen in all of this Have you seen the uh, John LaJoy Thank God for the Motherf***ing Nerds
1: rap? No Oh, I will send it uh, to you I, I am a big fan of his From his time on uh, the, the, league. the League yeah. And uh, I listened to some of his albums back then Oh, you will uh, love
0: his new one What <laughs> yeah. literally talking about you
1: Thank God for the right now thank god for the nerds. I'm not a very smart person. I don't know much, especially not about viruses or like science
0: stuff. Look it up, you'll find it and you'll say, "Wow, okay, this cool, is cool. precious." Thank you so much, Dr. I really course. really appreciate you talking to me. No problem at
1: all. Thanks for thanks for the time.
0: So ask Mother smart people some motherfucking stupid questions and let's get through this together scientists the tiny url to the google form is in the show notes please hop in it if you can help at all please do that you can follow dr wells at mfols 5 on twitter we are at ologies on twitter and instagram i'm at ali ward with one l on both and i'll have a new episode on tuesday I'm just cranking these mothers out, and that one will have no mention of COVID-19. But if you are thirsty for more info on this pandemic, my virology episode with virologist Dr. Shannon Bennett explains the basics of the disease and how it spreads, and she has a top-notch backstory. Whoo! Really one of the best I've ever heard. Now, that transcript is also live on my website at AllieWard.com in the Ologies Extra page. Thank you, Emily White and all the transcribers for getting that turned around. I love you so much. Also, my friends at this podcast will kill you. The doctor's Aaron from the Epidemiology episode released a my, my, my coronavirus episode. And they're doing a shockingly amazing six-pack of minisodes. Dropping on Monday, addressing all kinds of SARS-CoV-2 issues. They are wonderful, and they are the originators of the quarantini. So you can check that out. Thank you, Erin Talbert, for adminning the Ologies Facebook group. There's a thread there where people are sharing links to people or causes who need help. Thank you, Shannon Feltes and Bonnie Dutch, who host the comedy podcast You Are That, for managing merch at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Jared Sleeper. Of Mind Jam Media and the Mental Health Podcast, My Good Bad Brain, for giving your whole day over to the production of this episode and standing right next to me as I'm recording these sides. Welcome, as- <laughs> <you very> <laughs> And as always, thank you to the wonderful Stephen Ray Morris of the Dino Podcast, See Jurassic Right, and the Kitty Theme Podcast for scooting this to the top of the queue. He's staying up late tonight to upload it and to master it last minute for us and. Nick Thorburn wrote and composed the theme music, and he's in a great band called Islands, in case you need some new tunes to listen to in isolation. Um, in each episode, I tell you a secret. And this week, the secret is that I, like, to an embarrassing degree, I can't stop listening to the new Grimes album, Miss Anthropocene. It's so good. So many good jams. Such good just listening and driving around and walking around music. So listen to it. Maybe tweeted her boyfriend to start making some ventilators. I hear he's kind of a nerd. I heard, heard he's a little bit of a tinkerer. So get in the garage, Egghead. Let's figure this out. Okay, Tuesday coming up. Just a couple days. New episode. I'll be swearing like usual. So stay inside. Let's kick this COVID in the rump together. Apart. Bye bye. Very proud of you. I love you. That's so good. Pachydermatology, <laughs> Homeology. cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology.
1: Maybe there lives a happy little bush right along here.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. Oh boy, let me tell you I had to learn this over time. You know what helps? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was BetterHelp, because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online, it's convenient, it's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire, they match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible and I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat, you can text, you can do video calls, you can do phone calls. For some reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch at any time, no extra cost, no drama. So let me tell you, Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com ologies. It's about time. Squarespace. Where would I be without you? I would be website less. So, Squarespace is an all in one platform. You can build your brand, you can grow your business, you can stand out with this really gorgeous website. They have templates, they have drag and drop tools. All of a sudden, all your ideas that you've had, boom, look like a great and professional website. I put off putting up my website for years and then i've heard a podcast ad for squarespace i tried it and the next day i had a website i was like what why did i wait so long websites become less scary when you have squarespace you can get your domain name through them you can sell products as an online store either physical or digital products make some ceramics and sell them online i'll buy them i do that all the time are you knitting so much stuff and you need to sell it Get a Squarespace website, or if you have tutorials that you wanna put behind a paywall, you can do that with Squarespace too. If you are a PhD candidate, get your domain name with doctor in front of it, launch it the day that you defend your dissertation. Let people find you. Make stuff, let people find you. You can also collect email subscribers and convert them into customers. They have email templates you can customize. They have built-in analytics. If you're a data nerd, trust me, love Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com ologies for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Trust me, do it.